Welcome to the Dietitian's Dish Podcast. We are Gina and Nicole, two dietitian mamas and good friends living in Ohio and Michigan. This is a podcast dedicated to making whole family wellness more fun and less stressful. Whether you're listening in the car or slumped on the couch with a glass of wine, welcome. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to the Dietitian's Dish Podcast. I'm Nicole. And I'm Gina. And today we are dishing about eating disorders, disordered eating, and our own personal histories with a less than positive relationship with food. Because this is very sensitive material, we we need to make note that the views on this podcast are for general information only and are not meant to substitute advice from your medical professional team. Today's episode contains sensitive material and may not be appropriate for some listeners. Please note we will be be discussing our own experiences with eating disorders and disordered eating. We are not experts in the field of eating disorders beyond our own personal experiences and what we've learned in our nutrition studies. So before diving into that deep topic, uh, Gina, what is going on? It's been a couple weeks, haven't it? It has. I feel like we haven't podcasted. I mean, it has. It's been two weeks, right? Yeah. So a lot of it has been going on. So I went to a really good wellness conference last week. I'm I'm not going to lie. I'm just... I'm a wellness geek, and I think you are too. And I love wellness conferences, but you know, typically I have some, you know, issue. There's something about it that I don't enjoy. Either the the keynote speaker isn't great, or the breakout sessions are, you know, subpar, or the food wasn't even balanced for a, you know, wellness conference. But this one, five stars for sure. I mean, it was just everything about it was amazing. I learned so much. I got so motivated. The people that were there were just so positive and the breakout sessions, I learned something in every single one of them. I just loved it. I just had so much fun. And the the best part about it, I think, was that it was at the school where I work. So I didn't have to travel for it, which, you know, can be a good or a bad thing. I like to travel for work, but sometimes it's nice to have a break from traveling for conferences. So I just got to walk out of my office and get a nice walk-in, walk about a mile, made it to the conference room and was there all day and just really enjoyed it. So yeah, that was last week. So lots of fun. I loved you posted something. I'll probably botch it. Um, it was <laughs> it was something about health. It's not health care. It's sick care. Yes. And I've heard that before. I'm sure you have too. But it, I don't know. I was like, really? ding, ding. It was a light bulb moment for me. I okay. mean, because I, I do work in sick care. And mm-hmm. I I don't know. It was kind of a light bulb moment. I've always yeah. thought of my – I mean, my blog is Prevention RD. And that's – I mean, that's my yeah. – that's my identity, you know, is Prevention RD and, and what I live by. But yeah, I mean, my, my day-to-day, my nine-to-five, if you will, is in sick care and – yeah, it was kind of yeah. like, is that what I want forever? I don't know. And and there's nothing wrong with it. Once people have a condition, they need it taken care of. They need professionals like yourself who know what to do to kind of remedy the situation and make it a little bit better. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that. But in America, we focus on taking care of people once they already have a disease or a disorder or a condition. Mm-hmm. We don't look at preventative care enough. So that was the gist of this wellness conference. And it was just really, really eye-opening. A lot of focus on mental health, um, which was which was perfect timing because May is actual mental health awareness month, which is why we're actually doing the topic of eating disorders this month. Uh, but just eye-opening. I can't remember the stat that they showed, but I, I feel like it said, and I, and I hope this is right, but I'm, I'm almost 100% positive this is what it said. 
that from age between ages 10 and 34, the number one cause of death, excuse, excuse me, the number two cause of death, suicide between ages 10 and 34. I think that is correct, actually. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it. I flabbergasted by that one. And that was just one of the, of the many statistics that they showed in this conference. It was very research-based mm-hmm. um, and lots of stats, uh, lots of re- research, and um, just really, really informative. So, yeah. What about you, Nicole? I mean, that took up my whole week last week. This, and I will just say this weekend, I did something also fun. I went to an Indians game. Uh, so it was kind of like a long date night weekend with Nick, which we haven't done in a while. So that was, that was really fun. <laughs> Good for you guys. That's awesome. Yeah. And, but it and was raining, won. right? It was raining. It was drizzling. It wasn't like a downpour, nothing that I couldn't, no, nothing unbearable. My, my socks weren't wet. I hate when my socks get wet. <laughs> it's like my least favorite feeling in the whole world. Even when I was a little kid, I remember that. Oh, just the worst. But it was a light drizzle, nothing terrible. Um, it was nothing that a good beer couldn't, um, you know, help with. A good $10 beer, $12 beer. <laughs> exactly. $20, $20. How much are they these days? <laughs> it actually wasn't bad. I think it was like eight and it was about 16 ounces. Oh. That's oh. not terrible. Yeah. They're like yeah. giving it away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. What's a ball game without a beer? Come on. And a hot dog. Hopefully they have gluten-free options. No, just kidding. Um <laughs> our last topic. Oh my goodness. Well, um, I sound lovely again. So I don't actually think I'm sick. Um, unlike the past 10, uh, episodes, but I think I have bad (laughs) allergies and it just took me a week to figure that out. And so I just started on loratadine again this morning, but we've been sleeping with our windows open. It's been so nice, but I am just, I am parched. I think that this is and my throat just has this constant tickle. So I am mm. babying it tonight with a glass of rosé and we're going to call it good. Um, nice. Because work has been crazy. Our admin assistant, bless her heart, broke her right wrist. Um, yeah, and as that. a right-handed person, that is – she has she is not allowed to use her right-hand arm anything for six to ten weeks. Mm. So when your job is fully reliant on answering phones, writing, it's – it's just chaos. So, right. And then I add insult to injury. You know, I'm less than organized, as you know. Um, <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very true. And uh, so I'm a, ho- I'm a captain for hockey. And of course, week one, three people are, you know, they're gone. I'm like, this is going to be the nature of the beast this summer. It's summer. Like people travel, they have guests, like they're not going to want to come into a ice cold hockey rink, even though they're signed up to play hockey. So it's going to be a long season. Uh, first game last night, 9-15 start. We lost 7-2. to So that sucked. Ooh, that's yeah, brutal. I know. I know. So I'm just, you know, it was Monday. Like I didn't get enough sleep and mm-hmm. partied all weekend. And my party, I mean, played in the sun. And oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Such a nice weekend. So. I feel like your weather in Michigan is very, very similar because we're both in the Mideast. Or, excuse me, Midwest. So I feel like when I see you on Instagram, a lot of times the weather is very, very similar. Like it was snowing there, a ton of snow, but it was just raining here. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit more warm because we're not by the lake. Um, so overall, I feel like when you guys have nice days, we have nice days and vice versa. So we also had a nice weekend. So I was I was also lathering up the sun. I know. We hardcore. Just, we need it. Totally. Definitely. Yes. But no more snow. That's. Girl, if there's more snow, I'm gonna lose it. I mean, I'm I would lose it for you. I would no, <laughs> not. We've, we've had too much of a taste of spring and summer that that would be 
uh, my mental health would be at risk. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, cool. So let's dive into the topic for today. So like I said, May is Mental Health Month. And actually, we have recorded this podcast on eating disorders back in February a few times. And that is not a joke, people. We really did record this three times. This was back before we uh, met Brian, who is our amazing podcast guru. If you ever want to start a podcast and you need some help, he's your man. So hit us up if you need his information. So back before Brian, BP, BB, what would it be? BB. Or Brian. <laughs> we recorded this episode three times uh, to no avail and failed. So now we're back recording it again in May, which is Mental Health Month. So February was um, Eating Disorder Awareness Month, which is why we wanted it to come out in February. But alas, here we are. So just to kind of a brief overview of some of the well-known types of anorexia, or excuse me, of eating disorders. So we've got anorexia nervosa, body dysmorphic disorder, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. And those would be the ones that you've most likely heard of, binge eating disorder being the most common, which affects about 2 to 4% of the population. So some of the newer eating disorders, um, also ones that you may or may not have heard of, would be orthorexia and disordered eating. So neither of those are formally recognized in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, but of course does not mean that they don't deserve some attention. So just a little overview, disordered eating is a descriptive phase, so it's not a diagnosis. It's actually used to describe a range of irregular eating behaviors that may or may not warrant a diagnosis of a specific eating disorder. And then there's orthorexia, which I feel like has been in the news a little bit more lately. It's essentially an obsession with eating foods that are healthy and pure. And I have just given a brief overview. We've provided several... Um, informative links in our show notes. So please read beyond that brief overview of the different eating disorders if you are interested. So like I said, the orthorexia and eating this in, excuse me, disordered eating are not necessarily diagnoses, diagnoses, but they are, uh, they have very specific diagnostic criteria. I'm sorry. Even though they are not disorders, they still have some specific criteria to describe them. And even though they don't they fall short of being, I can't even talk, fall short of having a <laughs> diagnosis, that does not mean they don't deserve attention. It's oftentimes a slippery slope to then develop some type of a of a disorder. And we're going to talk about that, I think, with you a little bit with the disordered eating. Mm -hmm. And it's also something that I would say I kind of morphed into after having anorexia nervosa. I went into kind of a, a disordered eating phase, I guess you could call it. Because I didn't necessarily fit the criteria anymore of having anorexia, but it did not mean that I had a healthy relationship with food at all at that time. Um, and, those, and those conditions can still cause a lot of serious health problems. So they're still not to be ignored. So just to give a few statistics, I'm not going to go into too much about this, but these are some of the statistics that I felt were pretty shocking. So and really that I didn't know about until I started reading and, and uh, kind of educating myself for this uh, this podcast. So According to the National Association of Anorexia Nervosa and Associated Disorders, at least 30 million people of all ages and genders suffer from an eating disorder in the United States. Eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness, and there are a lot of statistics on the nationaleatingdisorders.org website, but I would say that some that stuck out to me the most were that 13% of women over age 50, that's shocking to me, engage in eating disorder behavior. Over one half of teenage girls and nearly one third of teenage boys use unhealthy weight control behaviors such as skipping meals, 
fasting, smoking cigarettes, vomiting, and taking laxatives. So you might not think of something like smoking cigarettes as um, a way to control weight, um, but actually nicotine and tobacco, I, I don't know which one of those or if it's a combination, but they do actually have a an appetite suppressant effect, which is oftentimes why people don't, they, it's one of the reasons why people don't want to quit smoking cigarettes because most people tend to gain weight afterwards because it does have um, quite a significant effect on your um, uh, on your not your metabolism, on your appetite. But your appetite mm-hmm. Yes. So a lot of times, unfortunately, what young kids are doing is they're starting to smoke cigarettes because they hear what the effect is on their appetite. So that's one of those behaviors. And I and I would say that that's probably something that was more so a problem ten years ago. Uh, I haven't heard if the e-cigarettes have the same effect. I really don't know. I would assume that they do, um, but I'm really not sure about that. And so, unfortunately, you know, but laxatives, vomiting, skipping meals is, is going to be a, a also a very common technique that teenagers um, are using to to reduce weight and control their weight. So, some of the risk factors for eating disorders, and specifically for anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder, would be having a close relative with an eating disorder or mental health condition. Uh, having a history of dieting or weight control methods yourself, perfectionism, body image dissatisfaction, a personal history of anorexia or anxiety disorder, um, and also behavioral inflexibility or intense rule following. So I do want to make a note here that having any of these risk factors does not mean you will have an eating disorder. They're just associated with a higher risk for developing one. So that's an important note. If you have a lot of those um, those risks, or maybe your parent or a close relative had an eating disorder and you're maybe type A and perfectionist, it does not mean you will develop an eating disorder automatically. You're just at a little bit higher risk. And that goes with many, you know, conditions and diseases. So now, okay, is there anything that I didn't hit on? I just wanted to make that kind of brief before we went into our own experience with eating disorders and disordered eating. What about, do you have any questions that you think our listeners might want to hear that I could possibly answer? No, I don't think so. I The one thing I just was thinking of that related somewhat to, I think it was two episodes ago um, with our Q&A and intermittent fasting was I could almost see intermittent fasting as being a gateway for disordered eating. Yeah. When oh, you were reading absolutely. that, I, you, skipping meals, fasting, it, it's both those things, really. Um, so, right. you know, we talked about kind of just intermittent fasting and who would be a, a good choice and a bad choice there. If you have some of those risk factors for eating disorders, um, intermittent fasting would probably not be a good choice for you. Um, right. And and same, I would say, adding to that, if you have had an eating disorder in the past, doing inter- intermittent fasting mm-hmm. is probably not a good idea. Because again, yeah. it's a slippery slope. I mean, I would, I would never consider doing intermittent fasting. I mean, and at least to the extreme that that it exists. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe saying to myself, I shouldn't eat after six o'clock um, unless I'm hungry since I do have a tendency to just munch on foods all day long or excuse me, all night long when I'm at home. Uh, that's one thing. But, you know, doing serious intermittent fasting, that's a slippery slope when it comes to someone who's had a history with an eating disorder, definitely. Or it can be at least. That's just kind so, of like a little aside, but. Sure. No, that's a very good point. Yep. So <clears throat> I'm, what we're going to do now is just kind of go a little bit into our own experiences with, for me, an eating disorder and for Nicole, disordered eating. I'm going to actually go ahead and, well, actually, you know what? 
Nicole, did I feel like when we taped this before, you went first. So, <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we just, you know, keep that going? And why don't you go ahead and, and give your little story um, first? Yeah. So, my, and it's interesting, you know, this is such an interesting topic for you and I to do together because we have very different paths um, that kind of both led us to a similar um, field anyway, or interest mm-hmm. in nutrition and, and passion for it, certainly. But, um, you know, mine dates back to really, I mean, early, early childhood. If you were to ask my mother, I mean, she tells me to this day that um, I was off the charts as far as weight for height. And I've always been on the heavy side. And and I really, I mean, from a very, very early age, my mom saw that that was evident. And she'll even make, um, you know, she'll recall for me that I was almost obsessed with food. At breakfast, I was asking, what are we having for lunch? At lunch, we'd, I'd be asking, what are we having for dinner? At dinner, I'd be asking, mm-hmm. what are we having for breakfast for the next day? Um, so there was just this... Um, definitely a, a passion, if you will, about food. Um, but at that point it was, you know, not channeled in a, in a healthy way. I mean, I was, I was so young, I was a child. And so, um, you know, didn't necessarily grow up in a house that was, um, you know, following, you know, my plate or anything similar. My mom, you know, I grew up in a home with two working parents, you know, things were kind of grab and go as, as you will, a lot of convenience foods. And my, mm-hmm. and my parents did the best they could. Our diet certainly could have been better and it certainly could have been worse. Um, mm-hmm. But looking back, I, I can recall some things. And, and again, I'm not putting any blame on my parents for this at all. Um, they've learned a lot as I've pursued, you know, nutrition over the years, both personally and professionally. But I can recall times where my mom would say, you know, Nicole, if you don't like what's for dinner, you can eat cereal. And I'd be like, great. I will happily <laughs> go good. to the cabinet and get that, <laughs> you know, super size box of Reese's puff cereal and pour mm-hmm. my milk over it. And, you know, my brother ate cereal out of a mixing bowl growing up. It was just, oh my gosh, there was no balance. <laughs> I'm picturing was, this. Yeah. Carb, 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 sugar, sugar, sugar. And to this day, he and I both would, we love cereal. So, you know, to her, that was not necessarily a punishment, but it was, you know, her way of saying, if you don't like what's for dinner, here's your option. Mm -hmm. And we took her up on it quite often. So, um, you know, by the time I was in fifth grade, probably I had reached 200 pounds. And for reference, I'm about five, two at that point, I was probably a little bit shorter than that. So, I mean, definitely obese, um, you know, couple that with some braces, glasses, and terrible <laughs> acne with a uh, good old Irish girl's tan of none, and I was looking good. Um, I was a sight for sore eyes, and so it was around that time. I was, I, I want to say, I was thirteen when I joined Weight Watchers, and uh, you know, Weight Watchers has improved their program a lot over the years. And mm-hmm. but back when, whatever, whatever year that was, nineteen ninety something. Um, mm-hmm. I think M- maybe late nineties. Um, yeah, that'd be right. Like 98. I, oh God, that makes me sound old. Um, <laughs> sorry. I'm like 98. You're younger than me. Nicole, um, so hush. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> it was, it was about, qu- it was quality, quantity of calories, not necessarily quality. So I can remember, you know, it, it definitely taught me portion sizes and label reading and things like that, but it didn't necessarily steer me towards 
healthier food choices. There, there was really no emphasis on whole foods. I would come home from school and I would have diet crush and diet, you know, baked Cheetos. Like that would be my snack. And then eventually I, I had lost a significant amount of weight. I, I'm going to guess a ballpark of about 50 pounds, 40 to 50 mm-hmm. pounds. And I had lost it rather quickly just from major diet changes. And by diet changes, I mean calorie reduction. Um, okay. And then it kind of stopped. And I had more to lose and wanted to lose. And so I had joined a gym that was literally on my way home from high school, you know, to the house and I'd stop. And I would say that I developed pretty quickly some disordered exercise habits. Um, I would, it was not unusual at all for me to get in upwards of two hours of high intensity exercise every day after school. Uh, I mean, just ringing wet. And, um, you know, I would go home and I can remember times I would eat like a 50 calorie, you know, turkey hot dog with a handful of baked Cheetos and call it my dinner. And, you know, I was in a huge calorie deficit at that stage, Uh, but the weight kept falling off. And, you know, that's an age for girls where the attention definitely started coming from boys. And it it was like, oh, who's this girl? Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, she's really changed. I can remember coming back. I think it was probably between eighth grade and freshman year or between freshman year and sophomore year potentially. Um, But it was was like night and day. Um, I can remember at that time I played hockey. My coaches were commenting on how much faster I was when I took up running. So there was just a lot of things going on during that time. And I would say that it just... um, seeing that success, if you will, on the scale almost um, just fed some of those disordered habits. Yep. Um, And so that's really my experience there. Come to find out in my, er, er, I would say early 20s. uh, So fast forward about 10 years through college and everything, I really struggled to maintain my weight. And um, you know, by college, I had declared nutrition my major, and I was I was committed to that, and, and did gain some weight. I, I call it love weight and probably healthy weight that went on during those college years. And when I graduated college, I was at about 145 pounds, and and while that is probably close to a slightly overweight category, that was really mm-hmm. a healthy place for me to be. Um, for my body. And when we started thinking about a family is when I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian uh, syndrome, which I had always had uh, a hunch about. Um, Yeah. I didn't realize it was so late. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the writing was on the wall. I never had regular periods. Um, I obviously struggled with my body weight. I didn't have a lot of the um, like acanthosis, niger cans that like insulin resistant, the darkening of the skin, like on the back of the neck and in like skin folds. Um, I never had any of that, but it is more common in people with, you know, darker pigmentation. So not hugely, you know, you know, I, that's not a reason to think I didn't have it, but, um, it was really when I started kind of tracking my periods to get ready for trying for a child, um, that I got tested and I was, I, I did have PCOS. And so, um, I've really, I would say there was something, it was right after the time we got married. So in like 2009 that I pretty quickly had gained some weight and struggled very, like even more so with my weight from that point forward. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. I need a sip of rosé. <laughs> Clear that throat. So, oh my goodness, it got me. <coughs> Excuse me. So- <laughs> That kind of takes us to today. Um, oh my goodness, frog. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I've really struggled through my adulthood. Um, 
to just maintain my weight. And so, yeah. and by my weight, I mean an an overweight category. So I am overweight. Yeah. I'm I'm very honest about that. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think you and I have talked about. And I I've been very honest with um, you know, my husband when we talk about it. And he's like, you know, do you think as a dietitian that people think less of you because you're overweight. And I, I, I tell him my experience has been quite the opposite that, mm-hmm. um, my patients have, because I do work in sick care, if you will, mm-hmm. my patients are coming to me because they have been diagnosed with a chronic disease. And often that's either diabetes or hypertension, you know, high cholesterol, something along those lines, obesity. And it definitely gives us a starting point to say, you know, I know what you're going through. Like I live it every single day. Right. And the scale is one marker, but you know, I I personally have taken my disordered eating and relationship with food and exercise, and completely shifted it towards what do I do every day, and you know, do I live by eighty twenty? For me, that's you know, eighty percent of the time, are your is your diet made of whole foods, high in fiber, rich in you know, all of those things with ample exercise without overdoing it, and then you know, the other twenty percent that you're able to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Sweets, alcohol, whatever it is, in moderation, and have that balance. And so, yeah, that's kind of my history. <coughs> so, I know you, you're Excuse still clearing the, the frog in your throat. I have heard that, and and I when I say I have heard this, I I just heard this on a podcast that I started listening to recently, and it's called Imperfect something about imperfection, getting over imperfection or something. They said that the PCOS, that those with PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome have a higher risk of developing eating disorders. Have you heard anything about that? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, and I think that there's a lot of reasons for it. One is these people are overweight. So mm-hmm. they're yep. they're getting told um, by somebody, whether it's media or friends or family mm-hmm. or themselves, quite honestly you know, their medical professional team, somebody's telling them you need to lose weight. Right. Um, you know, that that message is there loud and clear. And, you know, people who are overweight know they're overweight. Like, you know, right. they don't yes. they don't need it thrown in their face. At the same time, medical professionals feel it's their due diligence to yes. uh, address that. And that's that's part of, you know, delivering medical care. So there there's a balance mm-hmm. there. Um but people with PCOS have usually have insulin resistance, and there is therefore a hormonal, um, I would say, hormones are working against weight loss. Yes. So yes. what people don't realize about weight loss often is that, um, you know, ghrelin and those are all hormones that regulate appetite. I mean, that is, I mean, it's a thing. And so- when you look at when those hormones are out of balance and the struggle that people with PCOS can see with weight loss, oftentimes, you know, research would even say a lower carbohydrate or even it's research is even now showing more of a paleo slash keto type of diet has been Mm -hmm. most effective in helping reduce body weight in those with PCOS. And I actually read that somewhat recently. And I that that's a very restrictive form of eating. I'm not saying it it, it's, you know, everybody's going to have an opinion on that. But when you start eliminating entire food groups, that can lead to pretty disordered eating very quickly, especially if right. people are either to see success or no, you know, it, it, everybody's going to interpret that differently and deal with the results of that differently. Yeah. And it's especially disheartening when you go in to see your healthcare professional 
maybe because you are asking for advice about your weight or maybe not. And they just decide to tell you that like, oh, and by the way, regardless of if you're here about weight, you should probably lose some weight. And research is showing that paleo and keto works best. So why don't you give that a try? They give it a try. They don't do well. Then they feel shamed. Uh-huh. They, they didn't, you know, they, they weren't successful in what their doctor told them to do. They're, you know, it's harder for those who have PCOS to lose weight. Same with diabetes. It's just mm-hmm. more difficult. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's hard anyway. But mm-hmm. then you add some type of a me- metabolic condition and it's really hard. doesn't mean it's not doable. Mm-hmm. But you have to work extra hard at it. Yeah. Um, and I think part of it too is making sure that your muscle mass is up there. Just because, you know, for mm-hmm. myself, if my weight is too high, I want to be sure that a good, you know, I have a good amount of muscle mass to keep my resting metabolic rate high. And right. also if I am to lose weight, that needs, you know, weight loss needs to be accompanied with a, you know, a balanced exercise regimen so that you're losing fat and not lean tissue. Right. Yeah. To avoid the whole weight cycling, you know, lose weight as muscle mm-hmm, and yeah. fat, put it on as fat, rinse, repeat. And, you know, it just <laughs> doesn't lead anywhere, but more and ongoing struggles with, you know, weight. Right. Okay. So we'll go ahead and continue. I have pretty much written a novel. I wanted to make sure that I keep all my thoughts um, in order here. So I had an eating disorder for over 10 years and I really hadn't hadn't gone back and thought about my story in a really long time or really ever. I think I wrote a blog post about it maybe, maybe eight years ago, but since then really haven't put it into writing or words. Because uh, most of my friends and family were here when I was going through it. So I haven't really talked about it much. Uh, I have no problems talking about it at all. It's behind me, and I learned a lot about myself during this time, but I'm just going to go ahead and kind of dive into my story here. So I've always been a little, uh, I would say, obsessive-compulsive about certain things, and I've always been a type A personality with some perfectionism tendencies, I would say. I also grew up with an extremely loving mother who innocently discussed her weight quite often, which we've since talked about and addressed on many occasions. I know she's probably listening to this podcast. I want her to know I love her. (laughs) Those are just some things to keep in mind as I tell my story. So I've never in my life been overweight, but for a long time, I didn't really feel good in my body or about myself physically. Junior year in high school, I started really watching what I was eating, not necessarily to lose weight though. I would say I was about 115 pounds and 5'3", so really right at a quote unquote healthy weight. But I, I think more, I saw, I started controlling what I was eating because I wanted to control something in my life. So looking back, I know I was stressed and I don't know what about, but I didn't really feel great about myself in a lot of ways. So after about a year, I noticed I felt really good and was losing weight and it kind of became an obsession. So I realized my food control was giving me attention, kind of like you said. I liked it and I felt pretty good. Uh, I can't imagine I was very happy at this time because my control over my food was taking over my life in negative ways, but I physically felt good, albeit tired, is my guess. Looking back, I think the reason I felt good was because my IBS symptoms were a little bit better since I was really giving my gut a break by not eating as much. By the way, that is not a recommended irritable bowel syndrome solution, so please do not do that. Uh, sometimes when I have high FODMAP days now, so foods with lots of FODMAPs and feel really bloaty and heavy, I can understand how I probably did at one point feel fat because I was always chronically bloated even then. I'm not chronically bloated now because I do the low FODMAPs or lower FODMAPs. 
The truth is, this first year or so, I was living off of endorphins as I consumed zero fat and probably a thousand calories at most. I really did not count my calories. Really, my obsession was with fat. I made sure to get zero fat in my diet. Uh, I was incredibly good at controlling my food intake and I enjoyed it. So, kind of as it progressed. So, throughout my junior and senior year, I got better, in quotes, at controlling uh, my intake. So, basically, my eating disorder got worse. I watched my fat intensely and I ate a lot of dry cereal, non fat yogurt, bread, vegetables, fruit, and milk, skim milk, of course. So, yeah, it sounds rel- relatively healthy, but not getting enough calories and getting, I would say, about zero grams of fat. People started saying things to me, which sort of just gave me more motivation to continue with my food control and limited eating. After a while, people even said things to my parents who were in complete denial. I got down to about 92 pounds from about 115 pounds. So it might not sound like a lot to some people, but 92 pounds on a five foot three frame is not good. So I eventually, and that was not my natural weight by any means. I would say 115 is about my where I where I really feel good. I eventually got sent to counseling and an outpatient center, which was helpful. But I wasn't consistent, and I wish my parents had made me be consistent. And then I went off to college, still having an eating disorder. I'm not sure how they sent me off to college with an eating disorder, but they did. Again, I'm not blaming them. I'm sure they were thinking, you know, maybe things would get better in college. Uh, but two things stick out to me from college that first year at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, where I went. Here are those two things. Sitting on my dorm room floor, trying to stay warm with a hair dryer. I was so cold because I had no insulation on my body because I ate literally no fat. So I would lay on my college room, dorm room floor with my hair dryer just trying to stay warm. And then another thing was at lunch, I would dip my broccoli and egg whites in ketchup um, in the dining halls. And if you ask my college friends about that, they will never forget it. I saw a dietitian at Miami who didn't help. She basically just sat me down and told me what to eat to gain weight. Therefore, I went home and made sure not to eat those foods in my diet at all. And throughout my college, throughout college, my eating disorder, I would say, stayed constant and almost morphed more into bulimia and that I was eating plenty of calories, plenty in quotes. I probably was still not eating enough. And I probably ate too many calories in calorie, or excuse me, in alcohol calories. Sometimes I would binge, especially when I drank too much, and peanut butter was my go-to because it was so fatty, and I avoided fat uh, so much. It just tasted so good. And then I'd make up for it by over-exercising. That was my way of purging, exercising two to three hours at a time. Kind of like what you said. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how I got better. So honestly, I didn't have the support I needed throughout my entire time with an eating disorder. I struggled with it throughout college and even beyond. I did gradually return to a healthier weight after college. And when I say healthier, I reached, uh, I would say, about 105 to 106 pounds. So at the low normal for my height. Uh, it was certainly not healthy since it took serious work uh, to stay at that weight um, because my body was not meant to be at that weight. So I was still working hard to, to get there, but I felt good. I almost felt like I had beaten this when I got over 100 pounds, but I still had a terrible relationship with food. I still struggled with an unhealthy obsession with calories up until about 2010. I graduated college, to put that into perspective, in 2005. Rather than eating intuitively, I ate based on pure necessity, and my eating was definitely disordered. I ate when I was around people, probably what would be considered normal foods and amounts. But away from the public, I continued to really watch my fat and calorie intake. 
I know this was isolating in a lot of ways. And I would say I didn't really start making strides in my recovery until I met Nick. So kind of like when you met Mark. It was that love weight that mm-hmm. such, such was such a good, you know, we always say that in a negative way, but in, it was a good, good thing, obviously, yeah. in both of our cases. I all of a sudden had something else amazing to focus on, and I slowly started testing myself and proving to myself that I could move beyond my restriction and still feel good and look good and be happy. I also continued to tell myself I could never be successful in my career as a dietitian if I didn't have a great relationship with food. And if you're wondering how I can make it through four years of college learning about the importance of food and health and still have an eating disorder, all I can say is that my brain was hijacked. I would say everything changed when I started my low FODMAP diet in 2010. So at first, admittedly, it was the perfect excuse for me to continue limiting my food. So when eating out, all I had to say was, I can't eat that because of FODMAPs. But after about a year, I realized I felt amazing just limiting my FODMAPs. And I honestly think feeling better with my IBS helped me heal from my eating disorder. I don't exactly know how to explain it. That and having great support from Nick and my friends and family and being in the dietetics field, of course. Now my focus is on intuitive eating, but in the back of my mind always is my family history of diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. So with that in mind, I am mindful of my carbohydrates and saturated fats but I don't let it control what or when I eat. I have zero food rules for myself. Over the years, I've also been much more lenient when it comes to low FODMAPs. I know my threshold and I don't allow my IBS to have reign over my food choices. Although I am fully aware that some people who suffer more with their IBS really have to restrict certain foods to a greater extent. I'm privileged that I do not. That being, um, the saying might be, Eat to live, don't live to eat, but I don't like that. I live to eat. I consider eating an essential part of a healthy and happy life. Food is not my enemy anymore. People ask me now if I ever worry about reverting back to old habits, and the answer for me is no. That's it. That's my that's my spiel. Yeah, I love that. It's funny you, you said that because I don't think that, you know, live to eat, don't eat to live, or eat to live, don't yeah. live to eat. That's it. My mom says that all mm-hmm. the time to this day. And I, I just that. totally disagree. I She literally does not care about food. Yeah. Um, and there's some people like food. that. I shouldn't say that. I think, she, I mean, she likes good food. Don't get me wrong. But sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't wonder if some of my, I, I don't wonder if some of that existed back in the day when, when some of this was developing for me. Um, yeah. Just interesting. You said that. Yeah, I, I had to add that in there because it's one of those quotes that I don't, I used to say it like, oh, you know, you shouldn't, you know, you basically shouldn't have your whole focus on life be food. Um, it's not healthy. It's just another way of saying that. But I think looking at it the other way around, it is totally okay to have a healthy obsession with food. And I'm all about it. I am a foodie and I always will be. Well, and I think working in sick care, right? So many people don't plan or think about food and then I'm hungry, what's available, and they eat the closest thing they can find, which is never a good choice. Exactly. So you really should care about food a little bit more than not if, you know, looking at it that way, because if you don't give it any consideration at all, it's not going to lead anywhere good either, Um, especially if you struggle with obesity. Right. Oh God, I hear I hear Nick upstairs with the kids and they're just screaming. Okay, so moving on. So, so there's a really great article in Today's Dietitian Magazine, which of course we did put the link in our show notes, but it's about eating disorders and pregnancy. I'm just going to kind of 
review some of the stats from that article. So 30% of women who are pregnant may meet the psychological and behavioral criteria for an eating disorder. Research shows that eating disorder symptoms tend to decrease with pregnancy, that is, if there was one prior, but unfortunately, binge eating disorders may increase, is what the research shows. The postpartum time also poses a risk for women, and any woman with a recent history of an eating disorder should seek postpartum help from a multidisciplinary team, as their risk for recurrence of an eating disorder increases during that sometimes extremely stressful postpartum time. So, you know, I think that there are just, you know, a little discussion here, a lot of reasons why women might not want to talk to their doctor about their past history with an eating disorder. There's unfortunately still a lot of stigma involved with mental illnesses. And I think that a pregnant woman might just feel embarrassed telling their doctor that they have any type of bad relationship with food or they've had a history of an eating disorder or whatever it is. And that's really unfortunate. That's why it's important for all women to find an OB that they respect and that they're comfortable with. And they're comfortable almost kind of like a psychiatrist, you know, a psychologist in some ways, someone that you can talk to about those kind of things because they are the person that needs to hear this. They're the ones who are going to be getting you on the scale once a month. And then at the end, once a week, they need to know your background. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things I did when I became pregnant with Paige, because it really was not too far from when I was going through that disordered eating phase. Like, so my, my anorexia morphed into, I would call it disordered eating because I didn't necessarily fit the criteria anymore of having anorexia nervosa, but I was definitely disordered. When I got pregnant with Paige, it was probably only two or three years after I really felt good about my relationship with food. So the first thing I did was tell my OB about my history. Uh, I didn't know how I was going to be able to handle getting on that scale every month. I, I, I assumed I'd be fine, but I didn't know. I had never weighed myself that often. Honestly, I just don't weigh myself anymore. It's one of the things I just don't do because I know it's a slippery slope and I know I have a risk of recurrence having I, had an eating disorder. I think it can just be alarming for all women to, especially if it's your first pregnancy, to mm-hmm. have oh, this yeah. thing going on, um, this amazing thing, and yet to see the scale climb especially at the end, at the pace of which it does. And you tell yourself, you're like, okay, baby is gaining an ounce a day. Okay, got mm-hmm. it. And yet mm-hmm. every time you hop on the scale and see a plus one, mm-hmm. plus two, you know, whatever it is, it, it just can really, um, you think about it, you're like, what is my weight? It, it just it brings weight to the forefront and the center of, of really kind of gauging the pregnancy at that stage. And it's a very yeah. common question. I feel like it, it it almost, you know, how much weight did you gain during your pregnancy? I feel like oh, yes. uh, that's a very personal question. I, I I feel like it is. I mean, I have, and I have no I problem sharing, but um, it, it, I think I'm a perfect example. I gained 40 pounds with my first pregnancy mm-hmm. and, and started both pregnancies to the pound, the exact same, <gasps> to the pound. And Gained forty with my first and twenty with my second, and I wow. can I can honestly say that I cannot think of one thing that I did differently. And and it could just be the different makeup of your two children. I wonder. I mean, I don't know if there's any research to support that, but you basically say that they're two, they're built different. That um, Piper is more like Mark, and that Shay is more like you. So mm-hmm. maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah. I don't know what the mechanism would be there, but it is it just, interesting. 
Because usually I would think, I I think it's more common to gain more weight your second one, but I could be wrong about that. That's, I don't know. That's correct. Okay. They start, they tend to, at the, the second pregnancy, they tend to be a little bit bigger and then the third yeah. and the fourth. Exactly. Yeah. So the reason I was afraid to gain weight, it wasn't because there's anything wrong with gaining weight during pregnancy, obviously. I was nervous for myself because I was a little bit concerned that if I did gain 30, 40 pounds, that I would have an obsession with taking it off. Do I know that that would have happened? No. But that was always in the back of my mind, like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to do anything abnormal to control my weight while I'm pregnant or to make sure I don't gain weight. But it, but I really am going to make sure I stay on a healthy diet so I don't put too much weight on so that I don't then get obsessed with it afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, that was always in the back of my mind. I, I wasn't going to worry if I did gain it. There was nothing I was going to do to stop it. Like I did, I think I gained... I think my first trimester, I gained about five pounds more than you were supposed to. So I was a little bit concerned, but I would never have done anything to to make sure that I didn't gain too much weight, you know, because I knew, again, this is, if that's how much weight I put on, that's how much weight I was supposed to put on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. so one question, because I know you had gestational diabetes with Cameron. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that diagnosis triggered something in you to, uh, I don't want to say stimulate kind of some of those, you know, behaviors, but d- did yeah. you feel a little bit of that? Yeah. Oh, very much. I became a little bit obsessed and I, and I become upset. I, I was just telling a coworker the other day, and this is something I'm very aware of. I'm, I wear a, an Apple watch and I do have a slight obsession with closing my rings every day. It hasn't become an unhealthy obsession yet. Like I'm not to the point where I like go out to, for a run to make sure that my rings are closed when it tells me I need another 30 minute walk to close my ring. I, if I ever got to that point, I just wouldn't wear it anymore. But I, I spoke up. I told my coworker that it's, I have noticed a little bit of an obsession and, you know, just so maybe she'd keep an eye out for me um, if I said anything else again. But I'm just aware of that because I do tend to get um, almost perfectionism tendencies is what mm-hmm. I would call it. So, yes, when I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes, I became I, obsessed with making sure that I counted my carbs, that I tested my blood sugar, that my blood sugar was normal. and But in the back of my mind, it was not for me. It was for the health of my baby. I didn't want to go on metformin. Uh, so, yes, I would definitely say I became obsessed with that. And then uh, – and. Another reason why it was so important for me to tell my OB about my history of an eating disorder is because I then did not put on that much weight with Cameron because I was watching my carbs so much. I know we've already talked about in our last, in our pregnancy discussion that I was probably consuming about 120 to 150 carbs. No one ever told me that there was anything wrong with that. And looking back, I I kind of wish that maybe they would have asked me more like, well, how are you doing with your diabetes? You know, do you think that maybe you could go up a little bit higher with your carbs? I kind of wish that they would have talked to me a little bit more about that. I ended up having a perfectly healthy baby. And I I felt actually really good during that pregnancy after I um, started washing my carbs because I think I was probably gestational diabetic for about a month before I was diagnosed. And mm-hmm. I don't think it made me feel real great. So once I actually started having control over my carbohydrates, I think I just felt a lot better. So yes. To answer your question, it did it did kind of trigger that almost food obsession a little bit, but um, it didn't turn out to be anything bad. Ended up being perfectly healthy baby pregnancy. I turned out fine at the end after that. I think I gorged on a Wendy's like double 
cheeseburger and fries after I had him and then took my blood, my blood sugar. Cause you know, they say right after you give birth, the, the diabetes goes away. In reality, probably would you want to wait like one or two days for it to actually go away. It's not like a magic wand. So I took my blood sugar after that and it was off the charts. My meter wouldn't even read it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So anyway. You're so <sighs> funny. Okay. So anything, what about you, uh, your pregnancy experience? Yeah, I was definitely fearful of weight gain. And I think for me, like probably a lot of women, you know, I made it through trimester one. I'm like, oh, you know, I, I don't, I did not have morning sickness at all. I had headaches. I, you know, we already talked about that, but I, I had no <laughs> blip in my appetite at all. It was <laughs> hot and heavy. So, um, you know, there it was, it was, you know, I was glad, I guess you could say, um, to make it through that first trimester with little to no weight gain, which is appropriate. And it didn't really see an uptick in that, you know, in my number, in my weight until kind of probably, you know, I would say halfway through my second trimester. But, you know, I think again, par for the course, that third trimester, the closer I got to uh, delivery, you know, the weight went on faster and faster. And with Shay, so my first pregnancy, I had terrible carpal tunnel. I was, I, I, truly, I was a professional patient. I was in occupational therapy. I was in acupuncture, just trying to get the fluid off. Um, my right wrist was one inch bigger than my left. Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, it got to the point where it was difficult for me to wash my hair, do brush my teeth. I mean, anything that involved raising my arm, um, it just, it went numb all the time doing work got difficult. It was, I, you could have popped me with a pin. So (laughs) I was pleased that, you know, it it resulted that most of that was, most of that 40 pounds was water weight. I know that because it was often six days. You don't lose 40 pounds of fat and (laughs) blood and everything else in, in six days. Yeah. It doesn't happen. So, I mean, obviously if you break down kind of what, what, amount of weight is baby and placenta and all that kind of I mean a lot of I, I don't know it, once you subtract the fluid there might have actually been a net loss um it's hard <laughs> to say but I mean it it was just a very different experience uh you know what I was fearful of did not come true I guess you could say mm-hmm. um and I probably said this the first three times that we recorded it but as somebody who started her pregnancy uh overweight and I, I mean, to see the scale go down 40 pounds in six days, I was like, oh, baby, let's keep it going. Like, I got weight to, I got weight to lose. Um, this is amazing. You know, for, I have polycystic ovarian syndrome and I've been overweight my whole life. I mean, this was like, you know, the holy grail that had been gifted to me. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I'm breastfeeding. Like, this weight's going to fly off. And the scale came to a screeching halt at, yep. my, pre, at my pre-pregnancy weight. And so... I'm thinking now we should really do a, a podcast on set point, but I firmly believe that my body is just knows exactly what weight to get back to. And it's like, all right, I'm in my yeah. happy place. And I would agree with that. Yep. It's, it's not a weight I like, and I've just embraced that and, and focused on the other, other pieces of it. And so I think we'll talk next about how that kind of impacts our kids. Yeah. So how has our, our past history with eating disorders or disordered eating affect the way that we're raising our children? So Obviously, our different experiences might have us um, answer a little bit differently, but that is okay. So I have a daughter who's attuned to everything I do and say. She's extremely sensitive, which I'm going to be doing a podcast episode on 
um, soon. Actually, by the time this one comes out, that one might have already come out because I'm going to do that one um, around Mother's Day. So I'll say just a couple things here. So like I said before, when I was growing up and, you know, nothing against my mother, this was very innocent. She spoke a lot about her weight. I often remember her talking about dieting, losing weight, asking me or my dad if she looked fat or if her legs looked fat, just using the word fat, using the scale all the time, getting on the scale all the time. And really, I'll just say to kind of make my answer short, that is something that I'm just not going to do with my kids. You know, I may eat a um, carb mindful diet. I don't want to call it low carb because it's not. I'm just mindful of my carbs. I'll never talk about it with my kids unless they ask when they're older. And if I do, I'll be honest and say, for me, it's more about preventing chronic disease because of my history. Uh, And never will I discuss my weight with them in a way that makes it seem to them that I base my my self-worth on my size or a number on the scale. Because I think that's kind of how I was raised thinking that my mom did. And I'll say there are also some other people in our family who talk negatively about weight or make comments about skipping breakfast or lunch when we go out to dinner to make room calorie-wise for dinners that we eat out. And I will have com- I will have conversations with those family members or friends that they can never talk like that in front of my kids because I know how it affected me. Again, not to say that I'm 100% blaming my mom on my eating disorder because I know that was just one part of the big puzzle. Um, But I will just be very mindful of what I say in front of my kids. I'll focus more on what to eat more of, not less of. I don't talk about sugar as a vehicle to make kids um, overweight. I talk about it in a negative way. So I've heard people say, you know, to their kids, this is a fact. Don't eat that. That'll make you fat. You would think that no parent would ever say that, but they do. My mom never said that to me. I will never talk about, you know, Paige, you need to not eat, you know, too many sweets because it might, you know, add chub on your belly. Nothing like that. I will always say things like, you know, Paige, don't eat too many sweets, which I say this often, you know, because it might make your belly ache or because a dentist will have to clean your teeth extra hard. I will never talk about food in a negative way, only a positive way. And in our in our household, in our kitchen, it's always um, – there's never a bad food or a good food. It's just food. Um, and we do not ever talk about foods being good, bad, better. I mean, it's here's your food. Here's what you're being served. You know, it's always good to, and I, I'll, I basically just show her rather than necessarily saying it, what a healthy food environment looks like. We don't talk about it a whole lot. If she asks questions, I'll answer them, but we don't make, you know, food, a negative center of the conversation. If anything, it's it's the only positive things that we say about food. And I don't, hopefully I'm not going off on a tangent, but not good foods, not bad foods. Um, everything fits. And I want that to be our motto, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think we have similar things, you know, talking about sugar bugs in your teeth. Uh, we talk about, mm-hmm. I mean, Shay is in this stage right now at four and a half where whoever is the biggest is the oldest. Um, and so she is in this, you know, you, you always, they always want to be older, right? She wants to be five. She wants to be six. She wants to be seven. And, oh, and yeah. I'll just tell her, you know, fruits and vegetables are the thing that are going to help, help you grow taller. Yes. And mm-hmm. we just talk about, you know, growth and maturation and just 
um, you know, she idolizes everyone that's older than her. So, mm, yeah, uh, you know, we, the same way. Yeah. I think that's all kids. Yeah. I, I mean, just playing that up big time, um, and, and involving them in the food making process. I think, you know, for me, I have to just not let my fear and my past dictate my intentions. I, I really have to just spin that in a positive way. And, you know, I've said it multiple times, but, and, and you even said earlier, I can see my children have very different body styles and um, that I, I can't let that, that's the genetic deck. And so that, that is what it is, but I need to not slip into any type of an authoritarian feeding style and just be very mindful of what I say in front of the girls. Um, definitely using positive affirmations. I mean, mm-hmm. beautiful girl, sweet girl. I mean, whatever it is like that, not always, you know, something related to the way that they look, but, right. you know, being proud of them or you did a, you know, you did a great job. I mean, just making sure that those positive affirmations are there. Right. I think embracing diversity from all, um, you know, it, it's so cute to hear what, say, you know, the girls say about like skin color and things like that. Um, and she'll say, oh, the, my friend that has the, the skin that's a little brown. It's so sweet. I mean, it's just so <laughs> innocent. Um, and, you know, just the words that they'll use to describe kids, I, I think it's just so sweet. And, and just to really play that up with regard to whether it's hair or glasses or, yeah, I mean, size, anything like that. I mean, kids use those descriptors when they're um, you know, telling you about their day. And I, I think that'll only grow from here, but um, mm-hmm. really just emphasizing their intelligence and kindness versus how they look. And, and like you, we do have a scale in our house, but that's nothing that it is literally tucked under our vanity. You cannot see it. They will not mm-hmm. see it. Um, yeah. And I'm not putting down anyone who has a scale on their, in their home. I don't think that there's anything wrong with it, but I think what you just said there is key, making sure that your kids don't see you getting on that every day or even every month, because they're going to start to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I just don't think that's a good message personally. I know it wasn't a good message for me. And I just, I just don't think that kids need to see that. Yeah. So. I, I think it's, I think presenting, and I, I know for me too, is, you know, that the whole 80, 20 thing is, is being sure that foods that are less healthy, if you will, are incorporated into the diet, but in a, in a paced and controlled way that, you know, something that is authoritative versus authoritarian, you know, we did a mm-hmm. whole episode on that, but being sure that that's also what we do. Um, and it, it translates into, you know, my husband as well, family dinners, things like that, making food family and togetherness and not and nourishment and not just good, bad, but making it a right. thing versus just what's going into the body, I guess, but making it an experience and, and family time and togetherness. Exactly. Yes. Live to eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Awesome. That was a great conversation. I'm so glad we finally got to get through this episode and hopefully Brian will do his magic to make it sound awesome like he always does. Uh, so social media, Nicole. Yeah. So we find us. Uh, we are on Instagram, <laughs> Facebook. Uh, we are Dietitians Dish Podcast. We're on iTunes, Overcast, Pocket Cast. Uh, what are the all, the all the other ones? There's so many. Spotify. Spotify. Stitcher. Stitcher. Yeah. We're on them all. Yeah. And- 
Meanwhile, everyone, leave us a review. We didn't get to read one today, but leave us a good leave us a good review. We might read it on air. Uh, also coming up May 27th, we'll be dishing about our travel plans and our tips for staying healthy and well while traveling. So uh, tune in for that. And until then, everyone, uh, be well. Yeah, and hit us up on social media. Give us a review. See ya. See you soon. Thank you for listening for the podcast. Bye-bye.